Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Mac Nutrition and the Mac Nutrition Universal Certification. The MNU certification is fast becoming the gold standard when it comes to nutritional knowledge in the health and fitness industry. It's a 12-month, 100% evidence-based online nutrition course that can be completed alongside full-time work from anywhere in the world and qualifies you to be insured to practice as a nutritionist in over 25 countries around the world. You can also get a generous 50% off the enrollment fees using the coupon code LEANNE50. On today's podcast episode, we are chatting all things IBS and the low FODMAP diet. I'm joined by IBS expert Chelsea McCallum, who is an online dietitian based in Brisbane, Australia. Chelsea specializes in irritable bowel syndrome and the low FODMAP diet. She provides professional online video consultations and programs enabling clients from across Australia and around the world to access her specialized services. On today's episode, we talk about what IBS is and how Chelsea became interested in this area. We talk about how we diagnose IBS and easy nutrition strategies for IBS sufferers. We also discuss lifestyle strategies, medications and supplements for IBS. We then talk about the low FODMAP diet, what it is, why we use it and why we can't stay on it long term. And finally, we chat through social eating and IBS and Chelsea's tips to improve quality of life for IBS sufferers. You can follow Chelsea on her socials. She is IBS underscore dietitian. Her website is dietitianchelsea.com and you can find her on emails chelsea at dietitianchelsea.com. Welcome to the podcast, Chelsea. How has this year been treating you so far? Thank you so much, Leanne. It's been really interesting so far. I can't believe that we're already halfway through, which is just incredible. It's been a little bit up and down. I've moved house a few times, but in a new place now and all settled in and I have my kitchen unpacked, which is the best feeling because it means I can get in and, you know, cook some of my favorite recipes and start doing some more recipe development stuff as well. What about you? Yeah, I'm probably the opposite to you. We bought a house in, when did it settle? In March? this year and um, we were like, should we renovate? Should we knock it down? Should we renovate? Going back and forth and we're in talks with an architect at the moment. We think we're going to build new. So it still means that everything's in storage. I'm like, where is this? Where is that? Like we're just kind of, we're living with family at the moment, which is amazing. But some of the stuff I'm like, I don't even know where that is. Did I throw it out? Did I box it up? Where is that? So, so. Oh, it is the worst. It hasn't been too bad. We've been very fortunate that we've had um, have some great family that could take us in. But yeah, we've got some exciting new, um, I guess, next six, 12 months ahead of us between sort of building if we think that's the route we're going to go down. So it's been exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Come bring on that dream home. Yeah, thank you. And business-wise, what have you been up to this year? Very much uh, work from home, as I'm sure a lot of people have been doing, but I just run a virtual clinic, as you might know. Um, so still seeing my clients online here in Australia, as well as those overseas, you know, sort of one-to-one clients, as well as group programs at the moment, and just developing a new group program at the moment. Wonderful. How exciting. And isn't it so great that, I mean, there's nothing great about coronavirus, but I like to find the silver linings in things, that we live in a world 
where technology is abundant. So we can do online consultations. We can take our practice completely online. We can do podcasts like this and reach people all around the world while, you know, people are at home on the other side of the world in lockdown. So I guess it's a small silver lining to a to a worldwide pandemic is that it has happened in 2021 and we do have such great access to technology these days. Yeah. And I think it just makes it so much more accessible for people that otherwise wouldn't get, be able to get help from specialist um, dietitians or exercise physiologists or even physiotherapy or psychology. It just opens up for so many people to reach the healthcare that they really require. Yeah. It's just awesome, isn't it? And do you take clients around the world as well or just in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. About 50% of my patient load actually is overseas. The majority would be in the United States or Canada. And then about 50% are in Australia or New Zealand. So exciting. And I remember when I went through uni, oh God, how long ago is it now? Probably close to 10 years ago. I would have never dreamed that I could have clients. Like I've had clients in Dubai. I've had clients in Greenland. I've had clients in, Mm. you know, Russia. Like it's just incredible that nutrition can have such a a reach worldwide and we can, we can help people worldwide, even though they're in different countries. I have different products. They may have a different first language that they speak, but we're still able to access and help people all around the world. Yeah. We are so, so lucky. And often I think the time zone difference actually works in our favor as well, because their early morning or their late evening works well for our working hours too. It's amazing. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your knowledge with people all around the world. We're we're so excited to have you on. And I was saying just before the podcast, I can't believe I'm 90 something podcasts in and I've never done a dedicated one on IBS or the FODMAP start. So apologies guys, but Chelsea's here today to share all of her wisdom with you. Yeah, this is something that I could talk about underwater, so I'm excited to get into it too, Leanne. Wonderful. Well, let's start by talking about what made you interested in the area of IBS to begin with. This is probably a bit of a combination between my own journey with digestive health issues, as well as actually seeing how common it was in society as well. So working in private practice, obviously we're seeing clients for weight loss or heart disease, diabetes, uh, but without a doubt, I ask every single patient about their bowel habits and what's going on there as well, because it can tell us so much about their diet and what we should be modifying. And if there's anything else that we need to be focusing on in our consultations as well. And struggling with my own gut issues, it was something that I really needed to get on on top of and take control of so that I could help other people as well. And what I found was, is even the clients coming in for weight loss or heart disease, diabetes, fertility, nutrition, so many of them were having issues with their bowels as well. If it was constipation or bloating, or they were having urgent bowel movements as well. And it can just have such a huge impact on your life. So I started doing more research into the area and found that this really was my passion because you can transform someone's life so dramatically by improving their bowel health because you were no Leanne, people that suffer with IBSD or the more diarrhea predominant symptoms, Mm -hmm. sometimes they don't leave their house because of how urgent their bowels could be. Or if they're on the other side of the spectrum, they're so uncomfortable and constipated, they feel sluggish, they don't go out and socialize, they're not exercising, which can then make their symptoms even worse. So I just loved working within this demographic. I felt like I could really relate to these people because I understood the issues that they were putting up with. And then it sort of just snowballed from there. I started seeing more clients with irritable bowel syndrome in physical private practice clinics here in Brisbane, and then really decided to work exclusively with irritable bowel syndrome because I loved it so much. It is absolutely one of those really, really rewarding areas where you can actually just give clients their life back almost because it really does have such an impact on their quality of life, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think, you know, just with 
primary care doctors or general practitioners, they just don't have the time to provide education and support around managing complex bowel issues when it can be managed quite easily through diet therapy. You know, you don't need to have an expensive prescription filled for the rest of your life. You don't need invasive or dangerous procedures when we can manage it from a dietary uh, approach. So really exciting and interesting. And I guess that brings me, I guess, for my next question for you, Chelsea, what is, I guess, the definition of IBS? Because so many people have have sort of DM me on Instagram and gone, you know, my doctor thinks I have this, or I saw a naturopath and she thinks that I have this, but there's not much clarification around it, is it? Because there's no blood test that's going to tell you if you have IBS. It's more of that diagnosis of exclusion, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So it's really unfortunate that the average length of diagnosis from symptom onset to diagnosis is six and a half years. And that's because there is no blood test to diagnose IBS. So let's start off with talking about what is IBS. It stands for irritable bowel syndrome. It's a functional gut disorder, which means um, that your bowel, in fact, is perfectly intact. There's actually nothing wrong with it, but it's more to do with the function and more to do with the communication between the gut and the brain um, and that gut-brain axis. So you might have a bowel that moves too quickly, which results more in loose and frequent bowel movements, or you might have a sluggish bowel, whether you feel sluggish and a bit constipated, you might get extremely bloated as well. And like you said, it's diagnosed via exclusion, which means we need to rule out so many other conditions before we get to um, the diagnosis of IBS. So you might start off with doing things like blood tests or stool samples. You might get referred to a gastroenterologist to do things like colonoscopies, endoscopies, and gastroscopies, and then you'll end up potentially with a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, um, which then you might be referred to a dietitian or you might actually just be sent on your way um, because unfortunately, you know, I just don't think that typical healthcare providers think that it's a serious condition. I really truly believe that unless you've dealt with GI issues yourself, it's really hard to understand what someone with IBS goes through. So sometimes, unfortunately, our patients get left in the dark or they get left to do their own research and they get quite frustrated and confused. Mm -hmm. Or it's that mentality where oh, we've checked everything. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just IBS. And just that that wording. Yeah, yeah, it's just IBS. And the patient's like, no, I can't leave my house because I don't know where the next bathroom will be. Or, you know, I haven't been to the bathroom in nine days and I can barely do up my jeans. So I think for a lot of people, it's one of those, it's like, oh, well, there's a good thing you've got IBS. But when you're an IBS sufferer, it feels like the complete opposite, doesn't it? Mm, But it is kind mm -hmm. of nice to at least be able to give it a name, put a label on it as as well, I guess. I totally agree. I think getting a diagnosis is a relief um, because it means that you can actually change something. But unless you're pointed in the right direction, it can feel a bit lonely. You can feel frustrated and confused moving forward. And in terms of IBS, I know that it's becoming more and more predominant. Maybe it's our lifestyle. Maybe as health practitioners, we're more aware of it and we're, you know, quote unquote, diagnosing it better. What percentage of people at the moment um, suffer with IBS? So approximately 10 to 15% of people globally suffer with IBS um, with the highest incidence in some of our Western populations. So places like Australia, New Zealand, the United States, the UK, we see the lowest rates of IBS in some of our Asian cultures. So the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia will be as little as 5% of their population. So it really varies. And I wonder, is it a bit of our diet? Is that our lifestyle? 
because of the way that we use the restroom. So it really varies. We also know that two and three sufferers are women. Um, and again, I've got the question of, are we talking about it more as women? Is there the hormonal component that we need to consider? Or is it unfortunately a condition that does um, predominantly arise in women as well? Mm, and I myself am one of those IBS sufferers. I must say that uh, my IBS is a lot, lot, lot better over the years, um, particularly just because I've worked with professionals. I, I, uh, myself, I'm a dietitian, so I sort of understand how to help myself. But I think in the very early days, it, w- it was very confusing because as I was going through uni um, and I got my diagnosis maybe a year or two, I guess, before I started my university degree and FODMAPs was something that was only really just coming through. It sort of wasn't the gold standard. Not many people really understood about it. And that's what sort of sparked my interest in this whole area as well, because nobody could really help me. I tried the gluten-free, I tried the dairy-free, I cut everything out. Like my symptoms only got worse at the end of the day. So I really do feel like it's such a rewarding field to work in, but it's also something that it has so much confusion around it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, 100%. Like I'm exactly the same. Going through university, I felt totally unequipped because we talked about constipation, we talked about diarrhea, but we were talking more about modifying fiber intake or fluids or movement, all that kind of stuff, when the low FODMAP diet can be so successful in helping people manage IBS. But it's something that was really brushed over in my degree, which was frustrating um, because coming out of my degree, being a fully qualified dietitian, I didn't know how to help myself or my clients either. So I felt a little bit silly. And that's why I really had to take that plunge and do that research, um, not only for myself, but for others that I was helping too. And we're so grateful to have you on today. Um, And let's start, I guess we're going to go into FODMAP diet um, Mm. for our listeners at home who are like, just talk about FODMAPs already. But let's start (laughs) first with just some really easy nutrition strategies that we could implement for IBS, because I've seen a lot of clients who can get relief a lot of relief from their symptoms without having to go down the route of following a low FODMAP diet. So I always think that we should do it in sort of like a more staged approach where it's like, start with this, then trial this, then trial this. Because I think for a lot of, I guess, health practitioners, the first line approach is a low FODMAP diet. And I'm not sure about you, but I don't tend to agree with that because it can be quite overly restrictive. Yeah, absolutely. I think in any scenario, it's so important to do a detailed assessment to figure out if the low FODMAP diet will be appropriate for a client, because it is restrictive, you're right. And if we can do a partial low FODMAP diet, or if we can look at other dietary strategies that will have a significant improvement on symptoms, I'd rather go down that route as well. So the first thing to look at is obviously what symptoms the client predominantly suffers with. If it's more constipation predominant symptoms, we might be looking at having three regular meals per day, no skipping to help encourage that migrating motor complex to help encourage productive bowel movements. We'll be looking at making sure that they're getting enough fiber, enough fluid and enough movement throughout their day. If we're looking at a client that suffers more with uh, diarrhea predominant symptoms, we might be looking at other gut irritants, which can speed up digestion. So things like excess caffeine, excess alcohol, if they're having too much fiber, um, and if they're having a lot of fried or spicy food. So we can look at pairing back some of those options as well. Um, And then potentially looking at the overall FODMAP content in their diet, if they have high FODMAP meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we can look at just simply reducing that FODMAP content without doing that full-blown elimination diet. And if we do need to do the full low FODMAP diet, then that's absolutely a route that we'll go down. 
Yeah, I love them. Some really practical strategies. And then nutrition is just really one piece of the puzzle when we think about irritable bowel syndrome, isn't it? We really have that lifestyle piece, which I mean, for some people plays an even bigger piece than the nutrition piece. So lifestyle wise, I know for myself, stress management is a huge thing for my IBS. If I don't sleep, if I'm stressed, if I'm not doing my meditation and my deep breathing, my symptoms are always going to flare up. So how much does an impact does our lifestyle have on irritable bowel syndrome? It's massive. And I wish that I could quantify it, but I can't quite get there. I'm exactly the same. If I'm stressed, I notice that my symptoms flare up almost immediately. Um, So it's something that I try and get under control. But thank goodness there are so many options out there for us. You know, if it's gentle movement and exercise, which helps you to be a little bit mindful and take a moment to breathe, or if it's meditation or breath work, or if it's gut-directed hypnotherapy, which we now know is just as effective as the low FODMAP diet. So of course that ties into the assessment with clients as well. If they have a high stress job, if they're not sleeping particularly well, maybe we do need to focus more on the lifestyle modifications that they can make to help manage their stress and actually not even alter the diet one little bit. So it's really interesting to look at IBS management as a whole. It's not just about food, um, but it is about the stress or that lifestyle component as well. And I guess it's important to talk about things like medications, alcohol intake, cigarette smoking, because they can all play an impact on overall gut health, but also IBS flares and symptoms associated with IBS. Mm, And so interesting when we're talking about stress dietary approaches can cause a lot of people even more stress. And it's funny with IBS when they're like, oh, so it's to do with what I'm eating. So if I just cut this, 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 and this Mm. out, then I'll be much better. But you can almost see like the stress just built up in their body from knowing that they have to then go and follow an elimination diet. So it's like, is this actually going to make their symptoms worse or better? So I do love that we now have the research to support that stress management can be just as good as dietary modification. And it's so funny, like, with clients that I start working with, I always get them to start a food diary. So we've got some information moving forward. But after our first appointment and after we've decided, you know, what route we're going to go down with treatment, I say, let's stop the food diary because actually recording everything that you're eating and drinking, all of your symptoms, it can cause more stress than it's worth. And it's same with focusing on all of the foods that we might need to eliminate with the low FODMAP diet. That can cause stress in itself. So yeah, it's not always about the food, but what else is going on within your world? Sure. And can you tell us just quickly a little bit more about the gut-directed hypnotherapy? What does that involve? Can anybody do it? Is it a special course that they need to take? So to be a gut-directed hypnotherapy practitioner, you do need to do extra training. And it's not something that I do with my clients. I might direct them to a hypnotherapist Or there's a few apps that you can download now and subscribe to a bit of a challenge, I suppose, that you can complete a six-week course of gut-directed hypnotherapy. And it sounds a little bit hocus-pocus, like it might put you into a (laughs) trance, but really it's kind of like guided meditation, but it's more specifically directed to help you with IBS-like symptoms. So it's definitely worth giving a go if modifying your diet is not something that you're ready to do or if it's something that you're wanting to trial because maybe you consider that stress is such a big um, component as to a contributing factor to your IBS symptoms. 
Love it. And I love how easy we have, I guess, some information these days when it just comes to like, just download an app, like anyone anywhere around the world. It's like, just commit to maybe 20, 15, 30 minutes each day and, and look at your app and you can potentially get some huge relief from this debilitating lifestyle condition. Yeah, absolutely. Like we know, like I said, gut-directed hypnotherapy is just as effective as the low FODMAP diet for IBS. So super fascinating. And of course, with absolutely every treatment, whether it's IBS or whether it's for diabetes or heart disease, you know, there are non-responders. So in a scenario where the low FODMAP diet might not work for someone, looking at alternative therapy like gut-directed hypnotherapy is a great option. Yeah. And so exciting that we actually have the research to back it as well now, because you're right, it does sound a little bit hocus pocus. And maybe if you asked me five years ago, I'd be like, uh, I'm uh-huh. not really sure about that. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> so really totally. excited I would to have see been the exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Chelsea, well, let's dive deep into the low FODMAP diet. And I guess we have to start by asking you what FODMAPs even stands for, because it's a pretty cool name and I'm glad they've given it an acronym. (laughs) Me too. And for everyone listening, you'll understand why it's an acronym. So FODMAP, (laughs) it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyol. So huge mouthful. And essentially anything that ends in saccharide is a carbohydrate or a sugar and the polyols are sugar alcohol. So these are components that we find in lots of foods and really healthy foods as well. So our fruits, our vegetables, some nuts and seeds, um, some grains as well. But unfortunately, these uh, components, they're poorly digested and then they're rapidly fermented, which can cause a lot of discomfort in people that have a sensitive stomach. So for example, some high FODMAP foods are things like apples, honey, asparagus. If we're looking at some of our nuts and seeds, things like cashews, pistachio nuts, and chickpeas are high FODMAP. Large portions of wheat are high FODMAP. And then um, some of our high lactose products like milk, yogurt, and ice cream are also high FODMAP too. Wonderful. Great explanation. And it, it, it does sound like a really complex area, but I think the thing that is most surprising to a lot of people is that they're like, oh, that's everything that I eat. Like that, that's really healthy. So I think a lot of people have this misconception that, oh, I'm doing everything right. Why do I still have IBS? Like I'm eating so healthy. I'm eating so well. I don't understand why I'm having these gut health symptoms. Mm, I know. And it's super frustrating because you do think you're doing the right thing by eating a really beautiful plant-based diet, lots of fruits and vegetables. And it's just the unfortunate fact that lots of fruits and vegetables are high FODMAP. But the great news is for every high FODMAP fruit, there's a low FODMAP alternative. And the same goes for vegetables, nuts, seeds, our proteins, our dairy products as well. So that's what I really try and focus on because if we're taking away apples, we can put oranges in. If we need to take away cashews, you can put in walnuts, for example. There is a direct swap for almost everything. (laughs) Wonderful. And then what does a low FODMAP diet entail? And I think we should stress the importance of actually working one-on-one with a dietitian here and not just sort of jumping on Dr. Google and trying to do Mm. this yourself, because it is a very complex elimination diet that should only be done for a very short period of time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is probably the one message that I try and blast every single day if I can. 
the low FODMAP diet really should be rebranded and we should call it the low FODMAP process because in fact, it's not something that you follow for the rest of your life, but it's a process that you work through to reduce your symptoms and identify your personal tolerance to the FODMAP groups. Um, And then you can work on building tolerance or taking the right probiotics or the right digestive enzymes to really look after your gut health long-term. So there's three phases to the diet. There's the elimination phase where we remove as many high FODMAP foods as possible. It's a low FODMAP phase. It's not a no FODMAP phase, but really reducing FODMAP content. That should run for about two to six weeks. Um, If you haven't found symptom relief by the six-week mark, uh, we really need to go through your diet with a fine-tooth comb, make sure that you are following the low FODMAP diet correctly, um, but also make sure there's no other things uh, within your diet that could be triggering symptoms. You know, is it some of those gut irritants like I mentioned before? Is it some of our natural food chemicals like amines, salicylates, or glutamates? Is there anything else that we could be tidying up? After that elimination phase and after you've found relief, we then move into the reintroduction phase where we very systematically put in one FODMAP group at a time to really figure out your personal tolerance. Now, this is the most daunting part of the process. And I understand why, because you feel so good in the elimination phase and you're scared to reintroduce these foods and potentially get you back to square one the way that you were feeling prior to the low FODMAP diet. But it is arguably the most important part of the diet because it's where you gain clarity around what actually triggers your gut. And it is so rare that I see someone react to every single FODMAP group. Mm -hmm. And even if you do react to every single FODMAP group, the next stage is the personalization phase where we start to reintroduce some of those foods and we work on building your tolerance up to some of those FODMAP groups or taking the correct digestive enzymes for you so that you can enjoy these foods again and you can get back to living a really full and happy life. So super important, like you said, to work one-to-one with a dietitian. If you simply hop on Google and search up low FODMAP, you will be absolutely bamboozled with the amount of information that's available. And then if you go ask your doctor, you might ask your neighbor, a friend, you might ask a family member, everyone is going to have a different opinion on what you should be doing. And I always say, everyone's got a gut, everyone's going to have an opinion on it as well. So if you have the opportunity to, I strongly encourage anyone to work with a dietitian. It's going to fast track your progress and ensure that you're doing the low FODMAP diet correctly the first time, and then you've never got to do it again. And I love that you uh, mentioned how important the reintroduction phase was, because I myself was doing low FODMAP diet for probably close to two years. Um, I remember when I met my husband, David, I wasn't eating onion and garlic and he you know, would try so hard when he was cooking dinner not to put that in anything. And then as so more sweet. and more research came to light, yeah, he's a sweetheart, as you know, we got more research and we understood how important this was, I was like, oh, so now I should maybe try to reintroduce it. But that I was so fearful of so many foods. And if you ask me now, years later, like I don't have a problem with onion and garlic. Like I've just been able to improve my tolerance and my threshold over time, which amazing. has been amazing. Yeah, but yeah. I, there is a lot of fear around that reintroduction phase, isn't there? So can you let our listeners know why it is so important to reintroduce these foods and why we can't stay on a low FODMAP diet for a year, two years, three years? Because I'm sure that you meet as many clients as I do who have been on the low FODMAP diet for so many years because initially they feel so great and then slowly but surely their symptoms start coming back and back. And then before they know it, yes, they've been on a low FODMAP diet for two years, but they're as symptomatic, if not worse than they ever have been. 
Absolutely. It doesn't matter if you've been in the elimination phase for five months or for five years. It is so important to reintroduce for so many reasons. I guess the first being that the low FODMAP diet and that elimination phase, it is particularly restrictive. You're cutting out a lot of beautiful fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, grains, and that really restricts you from eating out with your friends and family or going to a potluck dinner, for example, where everyone brings something and shares. Um, It really restricts your diet even further. So it can restrict the social aspect of your life too. And what you're doing, unfortunately, when you're in the elimination phase of the low FODMAP diet is you are starving your microbiome of some really important prebiotic fibers. So things like onion and garlic, things like apples, things like asparagus, they are really good for fueling the microbes that live within our gut. So it's important that we reintroduce those, especially if you're fine with them. So then you can fuel your gut microbiome and help the microbes produce the short chain fatty acids, which we know are so beneficial for so many areas of health because it can help to reduce inflammation within the gut. We know um, short chain fatty acid production is associated with reduced rates of obesity. And there's so many more reasons as to why you should reintroduce. Uh, But also if you're restricting long term, you're also putting yourself at risk of nutrient deficiencies and particularly I'm thinking about things like B vitamins as well as calcium because if you're cutting out all lactose or all dairy containing foods you're putting yourself at risk of a calcium deficiency which might lead to osteopenia or osteoporosis moving forward as well and then it's the fear around food which we want to abolish if we can so reintroducing can help to build trust with the foods that we previously loved especially with the ones that don't hurt our tummy so there are so many reasons to reintroduce and all of them are equally as important really and you mentioned a really important point and this is something I definitely have felt in my past is that fear around food like me going out to a restaurant and I remember saying oh I'll order this stir fry but I can't have any mushrooms in it and I can't have any onion in it and that would come and it would have like mushrooms and onion in it and I remember I would spend like 15 minutes religiously picking out every single piece of onion in that stir fry and you're right it just causes more stress more anxiety which at the end of the day makes your symptoms worse so I would do that and then still leave that meal like that lovely meal out with my friends or family and still feel like I looked nine months pregnant and I was super super bloated. So it's like, yeah, what came first? Is it Was it the FODMAPs or was it all the stress and anxiety that I gave myself that made my IBS symptoms so much worse? I just think it's unfortunate that many people aren't told that the low FODMAP diet should be really a process and they're just not told that we really need to reintroduce. So if you have been cutting out FODMAPs for five or 10 years, it's not too late to reintroduce them. And if you're scared, it's completely normal to feel that way. But if you're ready to reintroduce those foods, don't hesitate to reach out to a dietitian that specializes in this area so that we can liberalize your diet and you can get back to living a really full and happy life. We can nourish your gut microbiome and really move on. Absolutely. I'm just taking a moment to shout out this episode's sponsor, Mac Nutrition and the Mac Nutrition Universal Certification. With the MNU certification, you are qualified to be insured to practice as a nutritionist. You can get a bespoke insurance policy right here in Australia, which you can also use to work with clients globally. They have insurance policies in over 25 other countries, including the US, Canada and the UK. MNU teaches you everything you need to know to get the best results with a wide range of clientele, including weight loss and muscle gain, as well as athletes. Likewise, they have modules on creating your own corporate wellness programs, working online as a coach and provide a year's worth of business and professional mentoring to help you set up your own nutrition consultancy. 
you can also just use the course to improve your own knowledge around evidence-based nutrition. You can find out more information at www.mac-nutritionuni.com. As a listener of the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast, you can also get a generous 50% off the enrollment fees using the coupon code LEANNE50. Now, let's get right back to our episode. And any tips for people to help them reintroduce these foods or these phases? Like, is there one FODMAP group that you would say would be easier to introduce and build a tolerance level to? Because for me, lactose, you know, I used to have maybe two spoons of yogurt and that was my threshold. Whereas these days I could eat a whole tub plus probably maybe half a cup of milk at the one time. And I feel pretty good most days. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So again, if you have the capacity to working with a dietitian can make this process so easy and it can actually take a lot of stress off that plate so that you know what you're reintroducing when and how and even what to expect with that reintroduction if you are doing it on your own be very systematic with it focus on one FODMAP group at a time and build up with your portion so that you start off with a small portion of that food and then over three days you progress to a large portion so that you can learn your tolerance and then you can build tolerance to quite a few of the FODMAP groups particularly the fructans uh, the goss the lactose, the mannitol and the sorbitol, we can build tolerance to all of those. And there's unfortunately no perfect method for building tolerance. It is small exposure over time. Um, It's interesting though, lactose and fructose, they're both linked to an enzyme deficiency. Um, So we don't think that it's so easy to build up that lactase enzyme that resides within your gut. But um, we now know something called colonic adaptation where your gut microbiome actually just gets better at processing the lactose as it comes through, which is super exciting interesting and really over a 12-day period we can see lactose intolerance really improve over time so 12 days is a really short period so that's fantastic isn't it yeah it really is and I I wouldn't have thought that you could build tolerance in 12 days times that's amazing because I think it took me about two years to build up my tolerance to things like onion and garlic and for me it was as simple as I'm a big fan of meal prep and when I would do my meal prep on a Sunday I would take a quarter of a small onion and put that across maybe eight meals that I was prepping for myself and David and I'd have four of them. So I would be having probably not even a teaspoon of onion in every meal. And then each, I think, month I would increase that. Like that was how great my fear was that this took me, you know, months and months and months and months to really build my tolerance level up. So really, really wonderful to hear that it shouldn't take you that long and it doesn't have to, particularly if you're working with someone like yourself who's wonderfully experienced in that reintroduction phase as well. But it is Mm -hmm. so important to as you keep saying, liberalize our diet as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, following a strict elimination phase for the rest of my life, it's not something that I would sign up for willingly and it's not something that anyone has to do. So as soon as we can reintroduce, we really should dig in and get to it. Wonderful. And you've mentioned enzymes a few times. So I myself only take one type of enzyme and that's if I'm eating Mexican because beans have long been something that I have really, really struggled with. And I remember seeing some great research um, from Monash a few years ago about um, the the bean enzymes that can be really, really helpful. And I know the lactase enzymes are another one that a lot of people do take as well. So can we touch on enzymes really quickly and I guess the top ones that you recommend for your clients? 
So really there's three enzymes that will actually be worth your time and money. It's the general digestive enzymes that have the amylase, the protease and the lipase that might not be beneficial at all. You know, they're going to be helpful if your pancreas is not working to full capacity. Um, but even in that scenario, really you should be getting a prescription for, for, for something from your uh, primary doctor or general practitioner. When it comes to our FODMAP intolerances, we can take enzymes to the fructose. We'll take something called xylose isomerase. If we're looking at those GOS-containing foods of the galacta, uh, galacto-oligosaccharides, we're looking at alpha-galactosidase. Um, and if we're looking at lactose intolerance, it will be a lactase enzyme. And really, depending on the brand and the enzyme that you're taking, you might need to take it 30 minutes before eating those foods. You might need to take it 10 minutes or even with those foods. Um, it really depends on that enteric coating that that capsule has. For how quickly it's broken down and being able to assist you with that meal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And definitely also depends on, I guess, the load that you're having in the meal, isn't it? Like if you're just going to have two teaspoons of ice cream as like a, you know, there's a little bit of ice cream next to your brownie or something with your dessert versus if you're going to have an entire ice cream sundae really um. depends on <laughs> if you're going to need and how much of those enzymes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. And do you feel like a lot of people get relief from using um, some of those enzymes that you mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny when you talk about things like Mexican, obviously that bean enzyme will be really effective for things like your lentils, your chickpeas, black beans, kidney beans, but necessarily it's not going to protect you against the fructans in that meal if you have a fructan intolerance. So people find them extremely beneficial. You know, some of them are quite expensive. So we really talk about, you know, if it's actually going to be worth your time and money for your specific intolerance. You know, if you've got a mild fructose intolerance, you might get those enzymes, we might not. Um, but I find lots of people will pick up the lactase enzyme, for example, because it's so easily available at most chemists and pharmacies, but it's also relatively affordable as well. So people find great relief. It doesn't protect you against all of the FODMAPs, unfortunately. And really the goal would be that we build tolerance to the groups that we can over time rather than always relying on the enzymes. But absolutely, if you're going out for an ice cream sundae or if you're having Mexican where you know you're just going to blow out with that FODMAP group, it might be beneficial to pick some up. Blow out and bloat out for a lot of us. <laughs> and I think that was a really important point you mentioned about just the general specific digestive enzymes. Like there's not actually a lot of research behind just those general digestive enzymes, is there? No, absolutely not. And they can be so expensive. And I feel like almost anyone is selling them at the moment, which is so unfortunate because as an IBS sufferer, if you see something that promises it will help with bloating or digestion, you're like, take my money. Like Exactly. You me 10, right? Um, so it can be really frustrating and it's really unfortunate when I see clients that have been on an IBS journey unsupported and they've spent so much money on supplements and enzymes really to only sit in the same space and not progress forward with their symptoms. Yeah, and IBS is one of those things where I think a lot of natural health therapy fields just want to throw supplement after supplement after supplement at. But when we look at where the research and the evidence is really pointing us towards IBS, supplements are maybe 5% of what we should be doing in terms of actually helping our IBS overall. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, probiotics, digestive enzymes, I don't even talk about those until my final appointment with my clients, because really we can do so much from a dietary perspective and we really should be looking at building up your microbiome 
microbiome whilst reducing symptoms and then using these things, the probiotics and enzymes as the icing on the cake. They really top it off, but they're not going to be the thing that uh, relieve your symptoms once and for all. Absolutely. And this is probably the point of the podcast where I asked you about what how gut health is so important, but we won't do that because that'll take on like another hour to the podcast. <laughs> what I would like to ask you, Chelsea, um, for our IBS sufferers, eating out and socializing, that's a really big thing. Any tips that you have for our listeners at home to just help them to socialize and eat out a little bit better and reduce some of that anxiety that goes with suffering IBS and eating out? Yes, absolutely. I think after lockdowns and the year that we've really had, it's so important to go out and catch up with our friends and support local businesses as well. So if you're someone that doesn't know their personal gut triggers, I think it's always a great idea uh, Well, for anyone actually to read the menu before you're going and have a really good idea of the kind of things that you could be ordering and eating. And don't be afraid to look outside of the mains menu, look at the entrees, look at the sides. You can put two of those together and create your own main meal that you think will be fine with your stomach. I also suggest wearing something comfortable. I can't explain the power that a comfortable flowy skirt or dress has on bloating. Um, And I'm sure everyone can relate to this. If you've gone out, you've had a big meal, the first thing that you do when you sit in the car is you unbutton your jeans and you let that zip on down. We've all been there, let's be honest. Um, And then if you do know what your personal triggers are, you've done the full low FODMAP diet and you're in that personalization phase, obviously scanning the menu for the big ticket items. If you have a reaction to mannitol, you're going to be avoiding things like your mushrooms or your cauliflower. So avoiding those and prioritizing some of the FODMAP free or low FODMAP vegetables that are suitable for your stomach. And then, of course, you can utilize some over-the-counter medications if you're really not sure. So things like peppermint oil capsules, simethicone, uh, things like iberogas can really help to reduce some bloating and improve digestion in the short term. That being said, again, they're not getting to the root cause of your symptoms, but they're really, I guess, a little bit of insurance for you if you're wanting to have some over-the-counter options with you. And in terms of, I guess, cuisines for eating out, if someone's really at the beginning stage of their IBS journey where they're just, there's a lot of that fear and that anxiety, would you say there are any cuisines that are a little bit better and easier and and you know, tolerated easier by the gut. I always had a preference for more Asian styles or going to, you know, Vietnamese places because I used to love those really fresh salad bowls with, you know, they flavor them with herbs and just a little bit of fish oil. So for me, that was always be one of the best things I could eat because it would give me the lowest amount of symptoms Mm -hmm. versus if I went out somewhere and had a a super fancy meal with all of this flavor um, that, you know, that would leave me suffering quite a bit. A hundred percent. I think Vietnamese and Japanese, they're probably the two Asian cuisines, which are the easiest to modify. A lot of their things are made fresh. You can ask for modifications. You know, if you're having one of those vermicelli uh, Vietnamese noodle bowls, you're just asking to take out any onion or garlic or the shallots if they're putting those through and then seeing what seasoning they're using on their proteins. I love sushi because you can get things like the avocado. If you're getting small portions, you can have sushi rolls um, with the tuna, you can have cucumber, you can have the carrot. So that's really easy. Edamame are a great side as well. I think some of our best options are like our meat and veg. So if you're going out for a pub meal, getting a steak and salad with the dressing on the side, or you're getting a salmon with some seasonal vegetables, I think is your best option. Unfortunately, some of your Italian foods, some of your Thai or Chinese foods, it's almost inevitable that it's going to be a high FODMAP meal, unfortunately. Um, So really navigating some of those cuisines that might fit within your personal 
triggers or if you're in the elimination phase, obviously going for the things that you think will be the lowest FODMAP. Mm, And I guess in the beginning and early stages, bland is best. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it is, unfortunately. Don't be afraid to ask what they're using to season as well. I think so many people have celiac disease or a lactose intolerance now. And I think it's only fair that as a patron that you can ask what's actually in something if you know it's going to trigger really uncomfortable gut symptoms. Um, and I find that most cafes and restaurants are really happy to be accommodating and help you out as long as you're able to explain to them what you can and can't have. Absolutely. And I think we live in a world where most people have some sort of, you know, preference with the milk that they drink in their morning coffee or, you know, how they order their meals. And it's not something that's really taboo these days to ask what's contained in the meal or if we can have some simple swaps or additions or, you know, when I line up at the local coffee shop in the morning, the amount of people who are like, can I please have this, you know, half strength decaf with syrup on oat milk to, you know, skinny milk and extra hot or whatever. Like it's (laughs) sort of the norm in our culture these days to ask for modifications. So definitely don't be afraid or um, feel like you're creating, I guess, more of a burden for the chefs, because I think a lot of people are more than happy to accommodate these days, aren't aren't they? Like it's sort of almost the norm in our society. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Every single time that I go out, if I'm scanning the menu and I don't know what is in something, I'm going to ask. Um, And I guess it's scary the first one or two times that you do it. But once you realize that they're not going to buy it back, they're just going to help you out, it's absolutely fine. Especially if you sort of frame that with, you know, um, can I just ask what's what's in the sauce today? Because sometimes I can get really sick with with some particular ingredients. I think they'll be a lot more open and receptive to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to frame it. And then, Chelsea, to end this podcast, what I would love to know from you, if there was one thing that you would recommend every single day to improve the quality of life for IBS sufferers, what would that one thing be? It's hard. I would love to give you two things here, Leanne. So I hope that's okay. Let's do two. (laughs) Okay, let's do two. So if you're doing one thing every single day for yourself and you're an IBS sufferer, it's completely not diet related. I think it's really important to get outside, outside and exercise in a capacity that you enjoy. And I guess there's two components to that. Exercise is so excellent for stress relief. It's really good to improve mental health outcomes. Um, it just gives you a little bit of time also to get your heart rate up, which is obviously good for your overall health. But if you're exercising outside, there's so many benefits for that as well. You might be getting sunlight exposure, which helps you with your vitamin D production, um, but also you're exposing yourself to more microbes within the environment. And we know that people that have more exposure to different microbes, whether it be because they do hiking or they go walking outside, or because they have pets that have different microbes um, within their bowel and on their skin as well, that you'll have a more diverse microbiome as well. So if you were to do one thing every single day, I suggest either getting outside for some exercise or cuddling a furry friend. And then if there was one thing that I could get everyone to do once per week, or I guess across the span of a week, it would be to diversify your diet and really aim for 30 different plant foods per week. We know IBS sufferers, regardless if they're on the low FODMAP diet or not, they have restrictive diets um, and that can really limit the diversity of the gut microbiome, uh, which is not a good thing. We really want a diverse microbiome and then we can associate that with improved mental health outcomes, improved bowel function and so many other things as well. So if you can aim for 30 different plant foods, which sounds like a lot, but it includes things like your fruits, your vegetables, your nuts, your seeds, your whole grains. It's not just about the fruits and the veg, but 30 different plant foods per week. Wonderful. Great tip because diversity is really key, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it just makes your life a little bit more exciting 
boring, doesn't it? So often we eat the same breakfast over and over and over again when we should change it up seasonally with the fruits and the vegetables that come and go or we pick up some frozen things or mixed berries as opposed to just frozen strawberries, for example. Wonderful. And then Chelsea, where can our listeners reach out to you? Where can they book a consultation with you? Where can they follow you on Instagram? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for asking, Leanne. I think the best place if you want to get to know me a little bit better is find me on Instagram. I'm at IBS underscore dietitian. And if you want to hear more about myself and my story and how I help clients, my website is dietitianchelsea.com. And then you're more than welcome to reach out um, on either of those platforms if you're wanting to touch base and book in for a consultation or you're interested in learning about my program. Wonderful. Thank you so much for all of your words of wisdom today. And I really hope that, well, I know that our listeners will have found this podcast very beneficial. So thank you again for your time and all of your experience and wisdom. It has been such a pleasure, Leanne, and so much fun to talk about IBS. So thank you so much for having me on. No, the pleasure is all mine.